0: What's going on, Church to Beloved? Uh, my name is Brian Z, and I'm one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And uh, to everybody who is uh, streaming and logging in, watching this from home, I just wanted to uh, welcome anybody here who's for the first time. It's really an honor and privilege uh, to be here with you today. Uh, I'm really excited to be here because actually last week I was supposed to preach, but I ended up getting sick. I think it was just food poisoning, so don't worry. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, like in a time like this when so much, when so many things are happening in this world, it, uh, it really is an honor and a privilege and an exciting thing to be preaching from the Word of God. Because if you look at it, this world has changed a lot since uh, this coronavirus has hit the scene. Coronavirus has affected a lot of things in the world, but to be fair, it hasn't affected everything. I'll ask him to put up this Facebook post, but one of my friends wrote this on his Facebook page. He said, one of the good things about social distancing is that bad breath and body odor don't matter anymore because you have to be six feet away. But I just thought it was funny because his wife immediately responded, it still matters to me. So while uh, coronavirus hasn't changed everything, good dental hygiene and uh, good, um, you know, using deodorant, those things are still the same and approvable and good things to do. It has changed a lot. A lot in our world has been affected by coronavirus. Uh, But I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about on a historical scale. I think this has been the greatest disruption to normal day-to-day living in our country's history, all the way back to probably World War II or maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis. If you take a step back further and you think about it globally, I don't think there has ever been any event in this world that has caused basically the entire globe to slow down and come to a halt. And so my question for you today is this, how do you make sense of it all? How do you make sense of it all? How do you make sense of this virus that seemingly came out of nowhere and turned the world upside down? If I had talked to you about coronavirus back a couple months ago on Thanksgiving when you were with your family and your loved ones, when you were gathered together celebrating, enjoying turkey, if I had said coronavirus to you then, you would have known nothing about it. It didn't even, it wasn't even on your radar back then. Even fast forward a couple of weeks to the middle of December when you were finishing up your Christmas list shopping, and getting prepared for the holiday and to celebrate. If I had talked to you about coronavirus then, you probably would have think, thought that it was some drinking game or that you needed to update your virus protection on your computer. And just in a matter of a couple of weeks or a couple of months, this, this new virus hits the scene and again, it turned our world upside down. It's the perfect virus to affect people. It preys on the weakest people the elderly, the immunocompromised, the people with pre-existing medical conditions. And not only does it prey on the weakest, but it actually uses the the the, the, over, uh, the overconfidence or the arrogance of the young who think that they aren't going to be affected by it, so they go out and they still go to the beaches and they still go out for St. Patrick's Day. And in their arrogance and in their confidence, they are agents for this virus to spread. And then you think about all the people that it affects again the, weas- the weakest amongst us. And how this virus has basically brought to the surface all the, 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 the poverty of the collective soul of man. The brokenness, the sinfulness, the self-centeredness, the selfishness has all come up to the surface and is on the world, and is on display for the world to see. I read an article about um, Spain, how there's elderly homes, how these nursing homes where the staff are abandoning the patients, they're deserting their posts because they're afraid of catching coronavirus themselves. They literally left these elderly people to fend for themselves and die because they were more concerned about their own well-being it's truly ugly, but before we're too quick to judge other people, we have to think about what's happening in our own communities, what happens at our own grocery stores, that you see people, otherwise, other, otherwise uh, reasonable, rational people going into a panic, giving into fear and hoarding supplies, whether it's toilet paper, or eggs, or milk, or diapers, or hand sanitizer, or even masks that medical professionals themselves need and there's a source. we hoard those for ourselves because we too are selfish self-seeking broken people how do you make sense of that how do you make sense of the job loss that there's people who are watching today from their couches who have lost their jobs who've been furloughed who've had a dramatic reduction in their hourly wages there's this past week they announced that three million new unemployment claims came through this week. Three million in our country. How do you make sense of that? And how do you make sense of the isolation that we're all going through, that you can't go and hang out with your friends anymore, the community that you used to be a part of, whether it's your job, whether it's your social circles, or even for some of us, our church, you can no longer be a part of that in the same way. How do you make sense of losing that? And the question again, for all of us is this: how do you make sense of it all? Well here at Church of the Beloved, we make sense of the world we're, we make sense of the world by turning to the Word of God. We make sense of the world by turning, to the Bible. Because to us, the Bible is not just some ancient text, and it's not just some uh, words written on a page that we can look to to glean wisdom or moral advice from, but we actually believe that this Bible is the Word of God. We believe that when we read it through the Holy Spirit or the power of God, that God can take those words off the page, and in his power, he can speak it to us today. And that's how we make sense of our lives and of our world and even this crisis before us. Today, the passage that was read by Kirstys from Mark chapter 13. And if you know anything, if you're familiar with the text, a lot of commentators will say that this, Mark chapter 13, is one of the most difficult, challenging chapters in the entire book of Mark. In it, Jesus predicts both the destruction of the temple, which is a really, really weighty thing for the religious Jewish people today, but he also prophesies about the end times, the end of the world. But just a heads up, we are not going to get into that part of the chapter today, all the talk about the end times. We're not gonna get into it because, well, that, it, it's intentional. Because personally, I don't think it's biblical or even healthy for people to sit with a newspaper in one hand. I mean, who uses a newspaper anymore? But to read the news and to read the Bible, trying in vain to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. What Are these the signs that are going to tell us that the end times are coming? Is it going to happen today or tomorrow or the day after that? And I don't think it's healthy for us to try to make coronavirus into something that it probably is not. Because I know this before coronavirus the sign of the end times was al qaeda and before that it was the communists and before that it was the nazis all the way back thousands of years to the ancient romans and that's a lot and if you add it all up that's a lot of time spent trying to figure out and wasting time trying to predict the unpredictable All throughout this passage, even when Jesus is talking about the end times, he's saying, you guys are going to see things. You're going to see wars. You're going to see calamity. You're going to see famines. You're going to see all this stuff. And you're going to think, is this the sign that the end times is coming? And basically, the thing that Jesus is saying throughout this passage is, you're going to be thrown off. You just need to be faithful during those times. It's not the end. And he finishes off this chapter, Jesus, by saying this, But about that day, the end times, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. See, even Jesus, in his human form, did not know when the end times were and did not spend a lot of time trying to predict exactly when it wasn't going to come. And I would suggest to you, if Jesus doesn't need to figure it out, neither do we. But instead, through this passage, this is what Jesus is modeling for us and telling us to do. Present faithfulness. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the end times. What's important is present faithfulness how you respond to the things that are happening in your world today. So with that in mind, we're going to focus on just the first two verses of today's chapter as we try to make sense of our world today and understand what it means to, 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 to live in present faithfulness. And just to catch up with for you, if you haven't been here during the sermon series, we've been going through the book of Mark. Okay? And so in the first chapter, at the very beginning of Mark, Jesus comes onto the scene and he basically announces this. The time has come. The kingdom is near. And Jesus is saying to everybody who will hear that there is something happening. There is something happening here before you and I'm ushering in this new kingdom with all the power and the authority and this is going to be life-changing to you. It's not just a fad, it's not just something that's going to come and go, but it's a new kingdom. And then he basically spends the first ten chapters showing people that these are just not just words, and this is not just an empty proclamation, but this kingdom is actually a new reality. In the first chapter of Mark, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees some fishermen working and hauling in their catch, and he looks at them and he says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. He doesn't tell them why. He doesn't try to convince them. He doesn't try to sell them on the idea of being his disciple. He just says, come and follow me. Leave everything that you've ever known. Leave your profession. Leave your financial security. And just come and follow me. Like that's the thing that normal people do. In the same chapter, this leper comes to Jesus. This person who's been inflicted by this terribly contagious skin condition. This person who's probably been abandoned by his family, This person who was an untouchable person. And this person comes to Jesus and he wants to be made clean. And Jesus does the unthinkable, breaking every religious and spiritual and societal law. He actually reaches out and he touches this man. He doesn't make a big deal of it. He doesn't sanitize his hands before or after he does it. He touches this man and he says, you, and he heals him. Like touching the untouchable is just something that people do. Then uh, in the next chapter, there's this paralytic who's brought to Jesus. And to bring him to him, his friends, they, they break open this hole in the roof and they lower him down so that he could be healed by Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man, he looks at him in the eye, and he doesn't even mention what his friends had just done. But he looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus doesn't say, "Uh, son, that was really messed up what you just did, damaging the private property, but I've paid off the homeowner, so now I can say that that sin is forgiven. No, Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins, the entirety of your sins are forgiven. Like that's something that people do. And there's a story where in this raging storm, Jesus wakes up from this nap and he speaks directly to the wind and the seas. At this moment, he doesn't pray to God. He doesn't confer with his disciples. He just speaks to creation like it would obey him, like that's a thing that people do. Jesus is beckoned into the home of his family whose young daughter has just died. And he takes her by the hand. And as her father and mother mother huddle over her, he speaks to her as if she were not dead at all. He speaks to her as if she could hear him. And he says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And he does it so simply and almost casually as though telling the dead to come to life is a thing that people do. And so that's basically Mark chapter 1 through 10 is Jesus is going around doing things in a radically different way. He's strange. He's different. He's other. He has this authority. He has this completely uh, unprecedented assumption of total authority over all of men and, yes, over all of creation. He's a big deal. And then in Mark 11, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the big city, the big show, the center of everything, and he's welcomed as a king. And people are starting to make the connection that Jesus isn't just a herald talking about another kingdom. He's not just a prophet talking about things to come, but he's actually the king himself ushering in this new kingdom before their very eyes. So there must be some excitement in the air as the crowd watches, Jesus take his steps to the temple. The temple, the very epicenter of the Jewish religion, this beautiful and majestic mountain of God, monument to God. This monument that the historian Josephus would say was a mountain of marble covered in gold. This temple that was holy in the deepest sense of the word this meaning place of the one true God and his people, this place where heaven and earth come together. And when Jesus comes to the temple, it would not have been wrong for all the people watching to think the king is coming to his throne. That this temple is where Jesus the king will rule from. Instead, Jesus enters the temple He spends some time there arguing with the religious leaders and then he leaves. He simply walks away. I was thinking of analogies and and, and the best one that I could come up with is, let's just pretend that you were a fan of a sports team that hadn't had a lot of success in basically 20 or 30 years. For the sake of this analogy, and it's completely hypothetical, let's say that the sport is football and let's call this hypothetical franchise the Bears. And you've been a fan of this team ever since you were a kid, and you've never really experienced the promised land. You've never really had victory. You've never won. You've never, yeah, like you've never had any real reason to celebrate. And over the past 20 or 30 years, quarterbacks have come. You've had the worst luck in all, uh, compared to all the franchises. You've had the worst luck when it comes to quarterbacks. You've tried to draft them. You've tried to sign them. You've tried to trade for them. And you get kind of excited because you think maybe this new guy is the one. Maybe he's the guy who's going to deliver us and bring us to the promised land. And we're going to experience victory through his leadership at the quarterback position. But time and time again after one or two seasons, you realize that he's not the one. He's no Tom Brady. But just... Go, go along with me for a second. Imagine that one offseason, Patrick Mahomes is a free agent. For those of you guys who don't know, Patrick Mahomes is young. He's incredibly talented. He's already been a most valuable player, I think. He's already won a Super Bowl. This guy is the greatest young quarterback probably ever, and he's a free agent. And let's just imagine the Bears actually have the cap space to sign him. And so he comes to Chicago to visit him and you're just following along on social media and Twitter. You're tracking the plane, figuring out when it lands. You're figuring out when he makes his way to the Bears facility and he just spends the day there. And you're just sitting there with bated breath, hoping and waiting and so anxiously excited about that time when that Adam Schefter guy is going to put out a tweet saying that the Bears had come to terms with Patrick Mahomes. But then it turns out that Patrick Rahone spent the day at the Bears facility not seeing eye-to-eye with the management. He wasn't that impressed with the facilities. He didn't think that he could be a part of this franchise. So instead of signing and delivering your franchise, he just simply walks away. The disappointment for people in that situation would be crushing. And not only that, when Jesus walks out of the temple, his disciples look up and they say, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus basically says, do you see all these buildings? They're all going to be destroyed. Nothing of this will last. And this is, this is weighty stuff. This is weighty stuff. The closest analogy I could think of is, is the World Trade Center. And, you know, if it's your first time hearing me preach, I usually don't bring up two tragedies in the same sermon. But, Think about it. When the World Trade Center on 9-11, when those buildings went down, it wasn't just about the buildings going down, but it's also about what they represented. They represented our country, American capitalism, our global policies. And it was all crushed when those buildings came down. And that's the weightiness that the disciples must have felt when Jesus shared this news. Those, that temple that center of your religion, it's going to be destroyed. And think about the way, and I I want to make this connection with all the things that Jesus kind of just nonchalantly says and does like they were normal things. Think about the way that Jesus says this to the disciples. He didn't gather his disciples and huddle them up in a secret place and be like, hey, I got some really serious news to tell you guys. The temple's going down. He didn't do that. Jesus didn't find time to get away to the desert to pray for 40 days and get this revelation from God and come and share it with his disciples. He didn't do that. I mean, Jesus doesn't even initiate this conversation. But he tells them that this temple is going to go down, and it's almost like an offhanded remark. What kind of authority does this man speak from? And that brings us to our kind of first question in this sermon that we're going to answer, and it's this. What does Jesus have against temples? What does Jesus have against temples? Before he gets, in Mark 11, before he goes into the temple, we have this interesting kind of story about Jesus and the fig tree. And it reads this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. It's an interesting story. I was uh, going over this sermon with my seven-year-old Isaiah yesterday because I like to try to uh, make sermon points to him. Uh, and uh, and, I, and I, I, I put it to him this way. My son Isaiah, the seven-year-old, he will plant any seed that he can get his hands on. Uh, We don't have a yard, so it usually happens at grandma's house in the suburbs, but you give him an avocado, you give him a lemon, whatever seed, and it's going in the ground, and he's hoping that that thing grows. I I haven't had the heart to tell him that those things won't grow in Chicago, but he just gets so excited about the idea of planting things. So I asked him, well, what would happen, Isaiah, if you planted an apple seed in grandma's yard, and you tended to it, you cared for it, you watered it, and against all odds, it actually... A little it, it sprouted out of the ground. And you again, you spent all the time caring for this tree, nurturing it, making sure it had everything that it need needed. And, and, and after days and weeks and months and years, it actually was a full apple tree, And his eyes got big. And I said, "But, the apple tree never, ever, ever, ever produces apples. It's just a tree with leaves." How would that make you feel? And Isaiah told me, he's like, I'd be angry. I would be disappointed. I would think that it was a waste of time. And I asked him, why, why would you feel those things? And he said, because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And right, that's what Jesus is saying about the temple. There's a connection between the fig tree and the temple. He's frustrated, he has these feelings. He, he just, he, he, he's against the temple, not because of what the temple is, but because the temple isn't doing what it's supposed to do. So the question is, what was the temple supposed to do? It was supposed to bring people closer to God. It was supposed to bring God's people into the presence of God so that they could worship him. But it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do because here we have Jesus himself, God in the flesh, walking with the disciples, and they don't recognize whose presence they are in because they are impressed with the wrong things. And to the disciples' defense, it's not hard to understand why they'd be so impressed by the grandeur of this temple, because all of us, we are impressed with massive and magnificent monuments. We're all impressed by big and amazing things, because when we, we are so small, but when we look at these great projects, they, make us, they give us a sense of confidence and security. But Jesus is not impressed because he basically says that monument, that temple that you think will never be destroyed, that thing that you put your confidence and your security in, that thing, that thing is going down. Your security, your confidence are utterly misplaced because you are distracted and you are impressed with the wrong things. You're missing out what's important because you're missing out on me. And this is the thing, it's happened before. In the book of Jeremiah, it reads this. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is a temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. And this is what God is saying. He's saying, I've been watching. I've been watching you over and over again. You keep turning to these other things for your safety, for your standing, for your confidence, for your value, when you should be coming to me. I've been watching you as you build temple after temple after temple that puts up a distance between you and me. Okay, and this is the big point. And this is what you need to realize is that when we need to realize from the cursing and the fig tree and the destruction of the temple, it says something about God and here it is. Jesus is saying, whether it's a fig tree or a temple, Anything that stands between me and my people, anything that keeps my people from me, anything that distracts us, anything that steals our worship and attention and love away from God, that thing is going down. If it's a fig tree, it will die. If it's a temple, it will be destroyed. Jesus is saying that God loves his people so much that he won't let anything stand between him and and us. And Jesus has full authority to say this, not only because he is God himself, but because Jesus himself is the ultimate proof of concept. Jesus loves his people so much that he won't let anything come in between us. He'll curse a fig tree. He will destroy a temple and he will let himself go and die on the cross. Because Jesus is not someone who says, you know what, it's just your toys that are keeping you from me. So I'm going to throw them all in the trash. He's not a savior who says, it's just on you. You're the one who's given yourself away to these idols. You're the one who's worshipped these worthless things. You're the one who has Put your faith and your confidence and your security in these other temples. It's on you. You fix up that stuff or you let me destroy it and then you can come to me. It's He's not a savior like that. Jesus is a savior who says, I won't let anything come between us, even if it means that I have to pay the cost myself. And that's what he did when he went to the cross. We just sang that song, Waymaker. Waymaker. And when there was no way, when there was no way for us to get to Jesus, when there was no way for us to be reconciled with God, to be in right standing before God, Jesus made a way at great cost to himself. He doesn't just destroy the things in your life that make you comfortable and make you feel safe. He doesn't just destroy the things in your life that keep you from him, but he puts his own life and body on the line so that we can be reconciled with him. He does all this Because he's the greatest lover of your soul. So then the question then becomes, what then are the temples in your life? What are the temples in your life? What are the things in your life that aren't bearing fruit, that are distracting us, that are stealing our worship? Right? What are the things that we're turning to for our validation, for our strength, for our identity, for our worth, for our salvation? You know, uh, coronavirus, honestly, one of the things that it's done is it's made that question pretty easy to answer. Because a lot of the temples in our lives have come crashing down over the last few weeks. We've been exposed. Things have been stripped away. You know, for me, one of the things that I usually find my identity in is I think that I'm a good dad. Right? That's what I hang my hat on. In fact, my, my dad, who, you know, we've had a hard relationship you know, growing up, especially, but he, he sent me this article about this NBA player who had a child at a very young age, and this article is all about how much he loves being a dad, how being a dad, even at a young age, even if it costs him going out to the clubs and hanging out with his friends, he says, being a dad is a, is a bigger part of his identity, is more important to him than even being an NBA star. And my dad forwarded that story to me and he said, Brian, this is just like you. And I was actually like moved to emotions. I, I responded to my dad, I was like, that's probably the nicest thing that you've ever said to me. Because it made me feel known and it made me feel like my dad really understood something about me and what was most important to me. Because again, that's what I hang my hat on. I take pride in the fact that I spend more time with my kids and any other dads that I know. I take pride in the relationship that I have with my sons. I take pride in the fact that my seven-year-old Isaiah is probably one of my best friends in this world. But as you guys know, with the shelter in place and with the CPS schools being canceled, my two boys are home with me all the time now. And that's hard. That's difficult. That's a temple coming crashing down. And so my seven-year-old son came up to me. He basically said, you know, dad, you know, now that we're at home, you're a lot grouchier than normal. You lose your temper. You get angry a lot quicker. What's the matter with you, dad? And so we've had to have a lot of these talks, but basically I was exposed and for real straight up, that was on the first day, the first day of the shelter in place, the first day he was home with me. He's like, something's different about you, dad. It didn't take that long for that temple to come crashing down. So the question for you is, what temples in your life have been taken away and destroyed over the last few weeks? For some of you, it might be your finances. And the markets are kind of up and down. It was kind of an up week, but it finished going down this week. But there's crazy volatility. And for some of you guys, you find so much confidence and security in your 401ks. You sit there and you look at it and you daydream about the day that you can retire early. And maybe that temple has come crashing down a little bit. For others, it's your occupation that you spent so much time and hard work. You went to school. You dedicated and sacrificed so much for you to achieve the position that you're in. And out of no fault of your own, because of this coronavirus and the effect that it's having on our economy, that has been taken from you. The thing that you find your identity, that the thing that gives you significance has been taken from you. For some of you guys, it's going to be your community and your relationships, but so many things that we find our strength and confidence and worth and those things have been taken from us. So many of our temples have been destroyed. So when you're at this point and you've been robbed of these temples, these things have been taken from you, how do you respond Well, I think a lot of us respond by building new temples. Let me ask you, how much time have you spent watching Netflix these past couple weeks? How many of you have, guys have actually gotten through that whole new documentary called The Tiger King in just a matter of a couple of days? I read an article that the European Union actually requested that Netflix downgrade the quality of their streaming because so many people are online and binge-watching that they thought it would literally break the Internet. Some of us have turned to online gaming. Some of us have turned to social media. We've turned to all these different things in our lives because we think that this is the thing that will distract us. This is the thing that will give me comfort. This is the thing that's going to make me feel better. This is the thing that's going to make me think that things are going to be okay. But when we do those things, even though they seem harmless, what we're really doing is we're just building more temples. We're saying, I want to be comfortable again. I want to be safe again. I want to feel like I have control. Again, or maybe for you, it's you read CNN like thousands of times a day. You're just constantly refreshing it, trying to find out the new numbers and to get the up-to-date information. And you go to the CDC and you try to find all the updates on their policies and their recommendations because you you think just by checking CNN and the CDC that 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 if you have that right information, that if you follow the right rules, if you socially distance yourself in the right way, that that's going to be your salvation. But the question that I have for you is, will it really be your salvation? Is it enough? Because these are hard questions to ask but now when faced with probably the existential crisis of our lifetimes these are the questions that we need to be asking will building these temples of comfort of information of distraction will following all the right rules washing yourself washing your hands with flawless technique hoarding all the n95 masks or whatever will it be enough to save you I think the answer is no. And so the question is, during these times of uncertainty, during these times of fear and isolation, where can you find your joy and your hope and your strength? Where can you find your salvation? And I would suggest to you that you can find it in the Savior of Jesus Christ. These are words that Jesus said that I often repeat in my sermons. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And you see what Jesus is saying here? He's acknowledging that in life there are times when you f- will feel like something has been stolen from you. There are times in life when you will feel like your dreams have been ripped away from you. When your security and confidence that you've uh, built up in your life has just been destroyed. Jesus is saying, I knew that there would be days like today. But he reminds us that he is not the thief. He did not come to steal and kill and destroy, but he came so that you could have life and have it to the full. And so as we respond to Jesus, as we do business with Jesus, as we interact with Jesus, we must not treat him like the thief because he is the good shepherd. And the way that we know he's the good shepherd is because he laid down his life for the sheep, because he went to the cross. And so the nature of our God is this. He's not one who takes and takes and takes. He's not one who's out to get you. He's not one who wants to ruin your happiness, but he never takes without giving you something better. And so my question again from the beginning is, how do you make sense of it all? Well, one way is if you put your faith and a Savior like Jesus, then one way of making sense of it all is to believe that Jesus is not the thief who is trying to take from you, but he is the good shepherd who is looking to give you something better through this. That somehow, through this uncertainty and this fear and through this distress, Jesus is inviting us to himself. Jesus is saying, stop being like a little child who has an imaginary friend who comforts him or who has a safety blanket or, 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 or a stuffed animal that they think, this is the thing that's going to keep me safe. This is the thing that's going to give me peace. This is the thing that's going to protect me. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's utterly, it's an utter waste of time to put your hope and confidence and strength in those things but instead put your strength and confidence and hope in me. So in this time of hardship, of crisis, let us continue to try and let us not continue rebuilding temple after temple, but instead let us draw near to Jesus, a Savior who won't let anything, a fig tree, a temple, or even the cross itself stand between us and him. So lastly, a quick application point. And it's this, don't build temples, but be the temple. Don't build temples, but be the temple. And you might be, I wouldn't be surprised if you're listening to this sermon right now and you're thinking to yourself, Brian, do you really think that God is allowing this world to be turned upside down like this just so we can draw closer to him? Isn't that a bit self-centered? Isn't that a bit narcissistic? And I would say, yes, it is narcissistic and it is self-centered. And I don't believe that God is like that. But I do believe that is God is control. I do believe that God is sovereign, that He's in control, that nothing that's happening in this world has Him shook or shaken. And I do believe that God is working through this coronavirus epi- epidemic, not just to draw you and me closer to Him, but to draw the world closer to Him, because that's just the type of God that He is. See. This is the thing, when the temple was around, I mean, you can look at the Old Testament, any good Jew would have come three times a year and made a pilgrimage to present themselves before God, to make an atonement, to sacrifice, and to be in the presence of God. But after this temple was destroyed, it was never rebuilt. And so for us, believers in Jesus, those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, we no longer have a commandment to make pilgrimages we have a commandment to go on mission because the presence of God is not something that is restricted to a temple anymore. But if you look at the scriptures, it says that the Holy Spirit, God's presence himself, is now indwelling in all of us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 6.16, they both basically say this, that you, if you are in Christ, are now the temple, And so what that means to me is that no longer are people required to make these long pilgrimages to be in the presence of God. Now we as the redeemed people of God are sent out into the world to bring the presence of God to the ends of the earth. We are called to pursue people the way that God pursued us. We are called to love people the way that God loved us. And we are, as Pastor James preached from two weeks ago, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that is a radical calling for this world as they succumb to selfishness and self-centeredness. We must take on this call to be the temple, to be the church, and to bring the love, the presence, and the power of God into this world that so badly needs it. Now, I'm not telling you to get off your couch and to go out into your neighbors and do a lot of things and to break all these shelter in place things. I, I think it is godly to, 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 to submit to those things. I think in this time, especially when going out and doing those things could spread this virus to the, weak, the, the weakest amongst us, I think it's, it makes sense to follow those things. But what I am saying is that even in this time of crisis and this coronavirus pandemic, we are called to radically love our neighbors well, to be the temple. And if we're going to pursue people like Christ pursued us, if we're gonna love people like Christ loved in the same way that Christ loved us, then this is the thing, it's gonna come at great cost. It cost Christ his body on the cross. And it's gonna cost you maybe some of that temple of security and comfort and being in your home. It might mean watching Netflix less and actually picking up a phone and calling somebody and checking in on them and praying for them. It might mean not succumbing to fear and trying to hoard things, but actually looking at your finances and radically thinking about how you can love your neighbor well during this time. But I ask you, Church of Beloved, and for anybody else who's watching, can we respond? to this pandemic, can we respond to the crisis that is before us by not succumbing to the fear and the panic that this world dumps upon our doorstep, but can we actually respond by loving people in the radical way that God has loved us, by pursuing them and not let anything standing between us and the recipients of God's love. Let's be the church. Let's be the temple. Let's bring God's presence to the people who need it most. Let's pray.